This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Hello again and welcome to Foreplay Radio Sex Therapy. I'm your host, certified sex therapist Lori Watson, author of Wanting Sex Again, and blogger at Psychology Today and WebMD. And I have with me Dr. Adam Matthews, my co-host, who's a couples therapist, psychotherapist, and president of NCAMFT. Foreplay is dedicated to helping couples keep it hot. Each episode, we cover an aspect of sex that impacts your sex life and something that you can relate to. So if you find our discussions helpful, please give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. We would love it if you would tell a friend about us. You can find us also on the web at foreplayrst.com. And if you have a comment or a topic that you'd like us to talk about, we'd love to hear from you. Please send them to us at info at foreplayrst.com. Thanks for listening. Now on to today's topic. Today's episode is part one of Lori's keynote address to the Forsyth County Medical Society's Sexual Health Awareness Group at Wake Forest School of Medicine, titled, How to Keep Your Love Life Alive. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm Libby Kelly. I'm the outgoing president of the Forsyth County Medical Society. So I'm introducing Laurie Watson. Laurie has been in practice for 27 years as a marriage therapist, couples therapist, and sex therapist. She uh, maintains a very busy practice both in Greensboro as well as in Raleigh. She has lectured both at Duke Medical School as well as at Chapel Hill Medical School, so we're excited to have her here for the first time. She's the co-author, she's the author, sorry, of a book called Wanting Sex Again, and she hosts a fun podcast called Foreplay. She's also a frequent keynote speaker, like she is tonight, and a guest on radio and TV talk shows. So please join me in welcoming her. Thank you for having me. There's a lot of people here. They say the millennials, sex is dead for the millennials. And it's probably the stress, right? The stress. You know, I have taught this material actually at my church. We're Episcopalian, so anything goes there, you know. We're, we're hardly to be trusted, really. But as I was teaching this, I had two friends who were coming to the class. They're married to each other. They're both doctors. One's an OBGYN and one's a urologist. And I told my girlfriend, the OBGYN, I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm a little nervous talking in front of your husband about all this, this sex stuff. What, what if I get it wrong? What if he thinks I'm, you know, what if he wants to correct me? Or, you know, I, I just, and she's like, he didn't know anything about sex. <laughs> so I know that I am the only hour that the OBGYN residents get at UNC Chapel Hill on sexual functioning. When I was teaching this class, a new couple actually stumbled in. You know, they were brand new. And it was the day that I was going to be the most explicit about the sexual response cycle. And I just thought, oh, you know, they, this is going to be the most interesting Sunday school class they have probably ever been to. And they were kind of unsuspecting. But when people come to a sex talk and they actually sign up to be here, you know, it's a bit of a double bind. There's a part of all of us that says, you know, I really, 
I really hope I learned something there about sex. And then there's another part of us that says, I really hope I don't learn anything there about sex, right? Because none of us necessarily want to be shown up and, and we feel anxious about sexuality. And if we've brought our partners, if we've been brave enough to do that, we are really hoping our partner doesn't think we need to know anything about sex and, or that we would learn anything here. We have very sexual, fragile sexual egos, including myself. I totally get it. And my husband. We've been married for 30 years. We have three nearly grown children. My oldest has come into the practice. And I forewarned my husband tonight. I said, you know, honey, all my good jokes are about you. So if you, <laughs> you want to be here, you can. And, you know, maybe he's hoping he'll not learn anything about sex either. Or maybe just see his wife and stilettos talk about sex. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> But I did a little research on sex and doctors before I got here in the medical economics. And it turns out that the radiologists are the happiest with their sex lives. The other thing is, is that the radiologists are most likely to have sex with the lights on. It's because they work in that cave. <laughs> I just made that up. I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> and the people most unhappy with their sex lives are the gynecologists, which that's really sad to me. Um, and the orthopedic surgeons are the ones who have sex the most, nearly 10 times a month. But you know surgeons, they got to talk about you know, all the good stuff. Okay, so we're going to talk about three things tonight. We're going to try to talk about how to keep your love life alive, both emotionally and sexually. And the first thing I want to talk about is what makes great sex? I believe that there are three things that make sex great. Being present, ruthlessness, and vulnerability. So when I was young, it was my duty to clean the bathrooms, and I would wake up, and in my mind, I'd be laying there on a Saturday morning, and I'd go get the bucket in my mind, and I'd get the, all the supplies, and I would see myself cleaning the bathrooms. And I, and, you know, eventually I was, I had to shake myself. It's like, don't clean them twice. You know, don't do it in your mind and then do it again. You know, and that is the absolute epitome, I think, of not being present. I could have just relaxed, had a few more winks, but instead, you know, I was cleaning the bathrooms in my head. And I believe that we do this sometimes when we're having sex, right? Sometimes we're multitasking. You know, there's, I, I'm sure you've seen it. It's, you know, it's that picture of the person having sex and they're like looking over their shoulder at their phone. You know, we're not in the place. We're not present to what's happening in the moment. And the other thing is we can maybe, because we have so much stress, we have so much to do, we can rush through the experience, barely feeling it, barely being present in that moment, you know, to get to the list. I wrote the book, Wanting Sex Again, and one of the things, in the beginning I saw more women, now I see equal measure, probably more men at this point, but the women particularly told me, you know, I, you know, I just, I can never have sex, I can never get relaxed. And I'm like, well, why not? You know, because I, I have the list. I, the list has to be done. And so I can't relax in the moment. And they can't get present. One kind of helpful little tip is, you know, obviously slowing it down, Try to look in your partner's eyes. There's a guy named Schnarch. He's a writer. He wrote Passionate Marriage. And, 
uh, his exercise, he writes this whole chapter on eyes open orgasm. I didn't even know that was possible until I was like 40 years old. I just thought your eyes like the doll, you know, you lie down, your eyes shut. It's like, you know, <laughs> orgasm, your orgasm, your eyes just shut, right? You know, but, but I think if you can feel some connection with your partner, sometimes opening your eyes and seeing them is a way to come into the moment. I, I have another little trick, for, but I'm going to save that for later for when your mind is wandering above the bed. So ruthlessness, it's a funny concept, but ruthlessness is the ability to really go for it in sex, to really let yourself try to get as much out of it as you can, and to believe and trust that your partner, A, wants you to do that, and that they're doing that too. So ruthlessness, if, if there's too little of it, if we're too hung up on... You know, am I pleasing my partner? Am I, you know, are they happy? You know, with too little ruthlessness about, you know, kind of a sense of selfish going for it, then sex is very flat. It's kind of boring. If there's too much ruthlessness, I don't care about my partner. I don't, you know, I don't care at all. I'm just hooking up and let's go. Um, then basically sex is mechanical. But if there's the, kind of the right amount of ruthlessness, then sex is hot because we have to have that ability to go for it. Vulnerability is, I think, the third thing that we need in order for sex to be good, to be great. We think that sex naturally declines with a long-term relationship. We've seen that, right? Everywhere, our parents... The old people, I look old to a lot of you. I'm really not that old, <laughs> but, uh, and I still want sex. But um, desire kind of makes us feel vulnerable. And I think that that's the problem in long-term relationship. In long-term relationship, you know, there's a lot of slings and arrows. It's difficult. There's a lot to work out. And so we start to turn off our vulnerability. The other thing is, is, what if we would allow ourselves to long for and feel the primitive sexual desire for this one person, all our lives maybe, if it's a committed relationship forever. To long for somebody and to desire them leaves us vulnerable to several things. One, they may not long for us back. They may not desire us. And so little bit by little bit, you know, we back up. Or they may desire someone else, you know. And those possibilities, you know, grow on us. Oh, this, I'm not so sure it's so safe to keep this sexual desire going, this longing for this person. Or the ultimate thing is, you know, they may die, right? To continue to long for another person is going to end badly, Every love story, the better the love story, the more tragic the end, right? We all die. Our partners die. And so we guard our hearts, and our hearts and our bodies are so one that we will dial down desire. We will dial down the vulnerability that keeps us going. There's a story about a princess, and she's kind of a poor princess. 
and her parents, the king and queen, they um, need some gold to keep the kingdom going. And so they decide to betroth their darling princess to a dragon, because we all know dragons have gold. And so the princess, not what she had hoped for, goes to a wise woman and a sage and asks the woman, you know, what about the wedding night? You know, I'm terrified of the dragon. And, and what am I going to do? This is a fire-breathing dragon. And so the wise woman whispers in her ear the secret plan for the wedding night. And so the whole kingdom comes and gathers and is celebrating. And, and meanwhile, the princess is dreading the bedroom chambers. And finally, it's time for them to exit and go into the, the prepared bedroom and so she goes there, and she sees her, you know, her, her new husband, the, the dragon. And he is all about it. And she says, you know, uh, I, I have one favor to ask of you. And, and he said, sure, anything, whatever you want. And she says, um, I, I'd like to undress for you. And the dragon's like, yeah, go for it. And so... She said, but, but what I would like is, as I undress, as I take off my gown, I would like you to take off a few of your plates of armor and scales. Okay, I can do that. And so she takes her wedding gown off, and underneath her wedding gown is another wedding gown. And so he takes off some of his scales, and underneath that wedding gown is another wedding gown. He takes off some more scales. Another wedding gown, more scales. Another wedding gown. More. She has ten wedding gowns that she has kind of stuffed herself into. Pretty soon he's kind of getting a little threadbare with all these scales coming off of him. And then underneath that there are petticoats and layers of undergarments that she takes off very slowly as he takes his scales off. And of course you can guess the ending, right? The ending is that after the scales are all gone, he's actually the handsome prince. And it's in undressing, it's in vulnerability, that the bedchamber becomes the place that it's meant to be, the, the beautiful place. But it is tough, it is really tough in long-term relationship to undress, right? We tend to say, oh, they, you know, they hurt me and put a little more on. So it's tough, but that's what makes sex hot. It's being present, the presence, ruthlessness, and vulnerability. More of Lori Watson's keynote address, How to Keep Your Love Life Alive, What Every Doctor Needs to Know, is coming up next on 4Play Radio Sex Therapy. Wanting Sex Again. How to Rediscover Desire and Heal a Sexless Marriage by Certified Sex Therapist Lori Watson. 
Each chapter is designed to fix one of the problems that cause low libido, from early marriage through the childbearing years, even all the way through menopause. I've also had men read it and tell me that for them it was the most hopeful thing they read about resolving sexual problems. Look for Wanting Sex Again on Amazon.com. You can also talk to Lori Watson for therapy in person or via Skype. I offer couples counseling and sex therapy, and I think about both aspects of the relationship, emotional intimacy and sexual technique, and that combination together helps marriages be happy. Weekend couples intensives are also offered. Improve your sex and improve your relationship with Awakening Center for Couples and Intimacy. Find out more at awakenloveandsex.com. Awaken what's possible. It is one of my great joys in life to be able to really help individuals and couples find strength in their relationships and really find hope again. Licensed marriage and family therapist, Dr. Adam Matthews from Matthews Counseling. I work with a wide variety of issues, including depression and anxiety, marital issues, issues with adolescence. I believe that therapy should be designed around you, that it should be personalized to who you are and to your unique situation. Therapy is available in office, online, and by phone. I want therapy to be comfortable for everyone. At our office, you'll find that we sit around a fireplace in deep, comfortable chairs, look at the problem differently, and offer practical solutions for you to take home and utilize outside of the therapy room. Schedule today and rediscover hope. You can find me on the web at matthewscounseling.net. Matthews with one T. You can contact us through email or phone and find a lot of resources on our website, matthewscounseling.net. Welcome back to Foreplay Radio Sex Therapy and part one of Lori's keynote address at Wake Forest School of Medicine. I see a few doctors in my practice, and I think that one of the flaws I see is that they often are so busy and they give themselves so fully to their purpose, right? Their purpose, not necessarily their person. They really have important jobs. You do. You have important jobs. You do have a high calling. You have a calling to heal people. And it's exciting. And I see these physicians getting caught in the excitement of their call. And, and it is fabulous. But sometimes they overinvest in the purpose and they underinvest in the person of their life, right? We need two things for its love and work. We need the purpose and the person to make us happy. And sometimes they're kind of surprised when their person it doesn't really go along with that neglect so well and gets a little upset about it and isn't ready to jump into bed because they haven't had a conversation in a week or so and they are feeling shut down. Sometimes their partners are like screaming at them, you know, hey, hey, we need a little healing here too. There's a little bit of sickness between us as well. We, we need some connection. But sometimes there's not time enough to be present, to be present with their person, to, to have time enough to feel love, to get in the mood, and to get connected. So I wanted to talk about, and this is the second thing that I think is important, is why sex and connection 
get caught in relationship, in the power struggle, how they get snagged relationally, and how, you know, what happens. We need love and work. We need a purpose and a person. And in our relationships, we also need two things. We need connection, and we need autonomy. We need love, sex, talking time, togetherness, family time. We need autonomy, right? To be masters of our own destiny, to have respect for our own decisions, to have alone time, to have our own hobbies, you know, some separateness. We need space as well. And I know that doctors often favor autonomy and purpose because it's so demanding to become a doctor and to be a doctor. So there is a huge demand. One of my girlfriends, another, I actually end up having lots of OBGYN friends, probably because of my specialty, but um, she has a calf that is permanently swollen because she blew it out in residency, you know, the long, long hours. And you can tell I'm not a doctor because I can't tell you what mechanism that was. But all I know is her calf is blown out and swollen all the time now. She gave so much away. We toggle these needs inside. The more time we're at the hospital, the less time we have to be with our loved ones and our family. When we're taking care of our patients, our businesses, or whatever, we have less time at home. I think as a working mother, I felt tremendous guilt about this. I felt a deep inner conflict about the time away from my children uh, that was devoted to my work. And, and I don't think that my uh, male friends that were working similarly felt the same conflict. So I know it's there. But this balance, balancing connection and autonomy, is really important for our love life. How do we get these two needs balanced? If you have been sitting around or if you have your computer open, certainly take this little quiz. I do capture your email and then you get just a few uh, newsletters from me. But it's a fun quiz and it's, it will personalize kind of this lecture for you in terms of what style you are, what, which side you're on. What I talk about is the person in relationship, even though we both have both needs, in long-term relationship, we kind of split the difference. One person focuses more on autonomy, and the other person focuses more on connection. This person, you know, busy. They're building their kingdom. They got work to do. Their hobbies often are alone hobbies. This person like more concern, just innately feels more concern about family time, talking together, sometimes sex. You know, they, they want more. And it becomes a chaser and a chasey game. The pursuer goes forward. The distancer backs up. It's almost like South Pole magnets on a rod. You know, the, the more they chase, it's weird, but the further back they get. Now, we all have the needs for closeness. We all have the needs for sex. We all have the needs for autonomy. But in relationship, they get pulled apart into separate people. Some of you couples out there, I see you smiling at me. You know what I'm talking about. Distancers want space. And we're getting to sex. Don't worry. I'll never forget sex. I promise I'll get there. Distancers want space. 
Pursuers want closeness. Distancers want time to do their own thing. And pursuers want time together. I have a girlfriend. I've been friends with her for 16 years. I've been out to lunch with her once. Because she says, you know, if she had time to do that, she'd want to do it with David, her husband. You know, any free time, any free money is going to be spent with David. You know, she's a mega pursuer. One time they got in a fight, and I, I took her out for coffee or something. And I'm like, you know, let's, let's go out to the movies, too. Oh, I forgot my pocketbook. I have to go home and get it. I'm like, okay. So she went home, and in five minutes, she came out, and she said, I'm going to stay home. You know, David wants to make love tonight. And I'm like, you know, gosh, if you went to the movies, he'd, like, buy you a yacht. You know, it's like, <laughs> give him a little space, girl. You know, just, like... <laughs> Stay away. Distancers, they really want respect for their differences. But pursuers, they're like sharers. They, they want to share everything, their thoughts, you know, all the time. It's funny, distancers are often people of few words. And, oh, pursuers, we like to talk. Talk, 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 talk. Distancers are often more concerned with production and pursuers are more concerned with family time, home, and hearth. Distancers, now in bad times, they become withdrawers. And pursuers become critical. Distancers will say this, no matter what I do for you, it's not enough anyway. I can't make you happy. And pursuers will say, yeah, down straight because it's not enough. <laughs> There's some pursuers out there. You know what I'm talking about. Distancers, their primary fear is of being controlled by that critical other, by being absorbed by their agenda. And pursuers, their primary fear is the loss of control and being abandoned by the other. And you see how nicely that dovetails into each other. You know, one feels controlled and the other is like losing control and then scrambling after further. Uh, in heterosexual relationships and often the lesbian relationships I see, there's, they, they might flip-flop in this as well. So, in a heterosexual relationship, 75% of all men are distancers. 75% of all women are pursuers. And so he might be more distancing in general, but he's the pursuer sexually. She might be more pursuing, tell me all your feelings, let's spend time together. Eh, she's not so interested in bed. So they flip-flop. And actually, that's probably the easiest couple to help because there's motive, right? There's good motive. One of them, they want something from each other. It, it is, it's more difficult when couples are congruent, when one's a distancer and a sexual distancer, or a pursuer, you know, and a, a sexual pursuer. Th those are harder to fix. Sex therapy really, in and of itself, doesn't take very long. I mean, almost six sessions, I can fix anything. You know, anorgasmia, premature ejaculation, ED, you name it, really when it comes right down 
to the technique part of sex therapy, it's very cognitive. I mean, it's getting a vaginismus woman to actually be penetrated takes about a year. You know, penetration takes about six weeks, and then she's done. You know, but but getting through to people, the, the problem is that we are having sex actually as humans. And it turns out that humans are very complicated, and it's just getting them to the party that is the hard part of sex therapy. It's like our limbic system tells us that when we're in relationship with somebody, the blame game kind of starts, and we feel this desire to fight to, or take flight or to freeze. And to unhook that system in order to get movement between them is kind of really the work of therapy. To stay sexual, as we've said, requires vulnerability, which is something most of us did not observe very much of in our childhoods. And our childhoods um, are, provide a map of emotional vulnerability and also sexual vulnerability. It provides the emotional map of how we relate intimately with another. And, you know, like they say, you know, the one person at the functional family conference, right? You know, most of us come from even good families have problems. Uh, we have three boys. You should see the house we could have built with all the therapy payments we made. You know, I mean, huge. And um, we have three adult sons who talk to us, which we think is a, an enormous achievement. But I got to say, you know, we also see three sons who have problems. Even though I was a therapist, my husband was working with people, you know, we studied this, we studied child development. Even in our family, we know we messed up. Even good families that try really hard just can't be there all the time, right? There's a, there's a mess up. And so that map lives in us, and our partner has another map. And sometimes the fight is whose map are we going to walk on? Whose are we going to use? Which dysfunction are we going to exhibit? In sex, sexual pursuers initiate sex. They've got the pleasure plan. They've got the master plan for fun in bed. They risk the first kiss. And they are hoping to make the marriage intimate and warm and playful. Sexual distancers actually like sex. They really do. But they're responders. They're not necessarily initiators. And they are more keenly sensitive to the intensity of sex. And they need sex to be safe. So they like seduction. They like to be tempted and coaxed and, you know, kind of charmed and sweet-topped toward this precipice that for them feels, precipice that feels somewhat dangerous and out of control. Sexual pursuers, they are improvers. They will have a great sexual experience, and they're going to talk about how can we make that better? You know, how can, you know, what should we do next time? Can we do it in the morning? How, how soon can we do it again, and how much better can we make it? And often, because we seem to connect with and commit to partners who are our equal emotional level, but our opposite defense. Pursuers marry, get connected with distancers. It's just the way it is. It's always proportional. Wherever you are on the seesaw, if you're looking at your partner going, you are such a mega distancer, guess what? You are such a mega pursuer. 
We're, we're always opposite in our defense. So those pursuers, man, you know, they, they like the, the experience, the sexual experience to be intense. They want it wilder. They want it better. They want it the hottest sex. And they want hot sex all the time. That's their expectation. They want an 11 on a scale of 1 to 10. Sexual distancers, that, that kind of thinking absolutely terrifies them. <laughs> you know, because they're not measurers. They, they don't think about the next time. They are enjoying this time. And they don't kind of measure this time against all the other times. If you ask a sexual distancer, what did you think? That was great. What, what, but was it as good as last? I don't, I don't know. That's not how I think. They don't measure the quantity or the qualities of sexual experiences. Every experience is a standalone. If sexual pursuers, if their fantasy is for more intensity, a sexual distancer's fantasy is about making their partner happy. I just want you to say it was great and then nothing. That's what I want. That's what would make me happy. They want to be skilled and attractive, but they want to be good enough in bed. Pursuers, you know, they can seem hard to please, sexual pursuers. And they struggle against anxiety. They struggle against this, these thoughts, worried thoughts about sex are like little gremlins that crawl into their head. They're obsessions that say, you know, it's been a long time since the last time, and and I know we had it last night, but it'll probably be that long again. And they start to get anxious. You know, maybe they think, well, my partner maybe doesn't love me enough or isn't as attracted to me. Maybe the, the fact that this was the best sex of my life is a fluke. And I've already had the best sex of my life, so I have nothing to look forward to. I mean, that's how their minds sort of start spinning. Sexual distancers, again, you know, that kind of thinking shuts them down because they think, you know, it's, it's just scary. That, that big intensity is scary. And sexual distancers have reasons to keep sex shut down. In some ways, they feel, I believe, sex more intensely than even their partners could ever imagine. They don't express it well, but they feel it very intensely. And that's why they stay contained. They often do control the frequency of sex when sex happens. But partly they're containing their vulnerability about sex inside. So sexual distancers, basically, uh, sex feels risky to them. I think it's, it's hard for them to trust their partner to meet their body needs. That feels like unbearable vulnerability. To ask somebody, hey, touch me so that you can give me an orgasm. I mean, that is incredibly vulnerable, right? And, and to instruct them to how to do that, you know, that's like really scary. And so sexual distancers kind of keep it inside. They, they too feel anxious. Okay, so now what do you do about it? Sexual pursuers, if you're a sexual pursuer, first thing you wanna do is bite your tongue against the in-bed critique. When you're in bed, no criticism. And when you're out of bed, 
Find something to say that's positive, right? Find something to say that is like, that was great, thank you. And don't ask, can we do it tomorrow? When's the next time? Was it good for you? Just, just zip it. Just say, you know, say it was fabulous. Find a way to positively communicate your feelings of anxiety. So when you're like, okay, okay, you know, are we going to do it again? You know, say, you know, rather than we don't have sex enough, say, I'd love to make love to you three times a week. You orthopedic surgeon, you. (laughs) (laughs) Sexual distancers, your tasks. Do your own work. You know, examine your sexual history, your childhood. Know who you are as an erotic being. How many of you have been told that you need to discover yourself as an erotic being? I mean, don't we all think that just happens naturally? We don't realize that we actually have to attend to that, that that's a piece to develop. I mean, we, we take classes and courses and fellowships and continuing ed. You know, we know professionally we have to develop, but sex, I mean, I can't even tell you the number of people who come, the percentage of people who will pay my fee and haven't read a sex book. I'm like, you've done nothing toward this. Sexual distancers, keep sex out of the power struggle. See if you can remove, don't play the power struggle out on the sexual field. Why? Because you lose out. Without eroticism in your own life, life is flat. I mean, those of you who know this and are sexual distancers, and just, I never want to have sex again. You know, life is kind of flat. If you're not looking forward to this hot thing, this spicy thing, in a long-term relationship, the bed is where excitement happens. And know your own body and what's normal, which leads me to our own bodies and what's normal. You've been listening to Foreplay Radio Sex Therapy. For the conclusion of Lori Watson's keynote address, How to Keep Your Love Life Alive, What Every Doctor Needs to Know, download our next episode. Thanks for listening. Hey, help us stay on top here at Foreplay. We'd love it if you would subscribe and share it with your friends. And please take one sec and rate and review us. Thanks so much.